We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Filling in for Dr. Reamer today is Dennis Jones from Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. And we welcome Tammy Combs from AHEMA. Today on Talk 10 Tuesday, for the first time, Tammy will unveil AHEMA's new CDI product brief. Senior healthcare consultant and CDI expert Cheryl Erickson is with us. And no surprise, she'll be reporting on CDI. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has a Talk 10 Tuesday coding report, and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who on Friday night will be posing for photos with the full buck moon, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Clark Anthony, very much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 469th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Dennis Jones. And good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Dennis, thanks for sitting in this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer. Great to have you back with us. This morning, we're honored to have Tammy Combs with us here on Talk 10 Tuesday. Uh, it's great to be back, Chuck. Tammy is the AHIMA practice director, right? That's right, and I'm surprised that you know Tammy. Well, uh, no surprise there. Uh, it's no surprise um, why she's here. And uh, why is she here? Of course, you should know that. It's big news. Tammy's going to be revealing for the very first time to do a hemocdi practice brief. Now, that sounds like a very interesting report. And because the practice brief is about CDI, we invited CDI expert Cheryl Erickson to be on the broadcast this morning. And there's no surprise there. And no surprise, Lori Johnson is here with the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. Speaking of no surprises, the feds last week announced the first set of rules eliminating surprise billing for commercial health plans. That's right. No surprise. Stanley Knoxon reported that news last week here on Talk to Enthusiasts. It's a developing story. It's a big story. And speaking of developing stories, you and Dr. Erica Reamer uh, will make some news soon. Yep, that's right. MedLearn has asked Dr. Reamer and me to host three live broadcasts during the IPPS Summit in August. That's when Lori Johnson will conduct three webcasts on the 2022 IPPS final rule. That's right. Uh, Lori Johnson is going to be heading or leading, actually, three webcasts on the 2022 IPS rule. And Eric and I are going to be hosting the pre and the post webcasts live. And uh, there's uh, more information, everybody. So uh, put it on your calendar now. It's August 17th, 18th, and 19th. Now, uh, speaking of news stories, Tim Powell is anchoring the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. That's right. And you have a point of view segment today. What's on your radar screen? You know, I do have some brief comments on the serious topic of violence in the healthcare workplace. Ooh, wow. Well, we're looking forward to your point of view. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And in an unprecedented move, CMS has proposed in the 2022 Outpatient Perspective Payment System Rule to put back on the inpatient-only list all the procedures that they removed from the inpatient-only list at the beginning of the calendar year. The agency has also put a halt to its three-year plan to completely eliminate the inpatient-only list. It appears that the motivation is to protect the safety of Medicare beneficiaries and take a more cautious approach to removing services from the inpatient-only list, looking at them on an individual basis rather than by class. According to Dr. Ronald Hirsch, 
there are still five months left in the year, and it's unclear what physicians and hospitals should do with this information. Dr. Hurst said that since the audit moratorium remains in place for all the procedures removed this year, and CMS has admitted proceeding too quickly with the removal process, it may be reasonable to tell physicians to disregard the complicated decision-making process that we wanted them to undertake and go back to admitting everybody as an inpatient starting today. Dr. Hirsch cautioned that the compliance issue is too tricky, and he says not to ignore the status recommendations that are still technically and legally in place. But Dr. Hirsch thinks this question is one that every compliance officer needs to resolve quickly. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much for that developing story. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's July 20th, and today the vaccination rate of those who have been fully vaccinated in the United States now stands at 49.2%. You're listening to Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. The emergency department may be a front door to your hospital, but can also be a portal to subpar documentation, creating serious revenue and compliance hazards. A major sticking point is status determination. Does the ED documentation support inpatient or observation admission? Lack of support for medical necessity may trigger a payer review and subsequent denial. And what about a present on arrival condition that's resolved before admission or discharge? How will you get reimbursed if the emergency physician does not document it? During an ICD-10 Monitor webcast, you'll get answers to these questions and more from Dr. Erica Reamer, a former emergency physician who's now a CDI consultant. The webcast CDI for the ED Tools and Tips from an Emergency Physician is now available on demand. Register at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the Tucked In Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has the Tucked In Tuesday listener survey. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Dennis, and hello to our listeners. Overdose deaths have been in the news this month. Last year's overdose deaths rose to 93,000, which is an increase of 29% over what the previous year total of 72,000. The significant drugs involved include heroin and fentanyl. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, data suggests that fentanyl is involved in 60% of the overdose deaths. According to the CDC, there were less than 7,200 overdose deaths in 1970 at the height of the heroin epidemic, and approximately 9,000 overdose deaths in 1988 when crack cocaine epidemic was proliferating. A decrease in this statistic is not expected. The code assignment for these overdoses is found in the table of drugs and chemicals. For fentanyl, the code is T40.41, and then the sixth digit would be one for accidental, two for intentional, three for assault, four for undetermined, five for adverse effect, and six for underdosing. For heroin, the code is T40.1X. 1 for accidental, 1x2 for intentional, 1x3 for assault, and 1x4 for undetermined. You may be wondering what is the code for adverse effect and underdosing, and there are no options in ICD-10-CM for those codes. 
the seven characters of A for initial encounter, D subsequent encounter, and S sequela are applicable for all the aforementioned codes. And I also want to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the SAMHSA's national helpline is 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. Now let's move on to the listener survey. Today's listener survey is, have you noticed an increase in overdose deaths in your area? A is for yes. B is for no, and C is unknown or no answer. And we will be back later to review the results. So back to you, Dennis. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Over to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dennis, very much. And Lori, thanks for the survey and thanks for the report. And as Lori said, we will have the results of the Tucked In Tuesday listener survey later in this broadcast. As you heard us say at the top of the broadcast, AHIMA chose Talk 10 Tuesday to reveal its new CDI practice brief. And to provide context, here is CDI expert Cheryl Erickson with our Tuesday focus. And welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday, Cheryl. Good morning. Thank you for having me back to Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck, and hello to our listeners today. You know, CDI continues to expand, and that's why this practice brief is so very important. But there's other blind spots that might still exist within the CDI realm. I also thought that the update we received earlier about the inpatient-only list is also pertinent to what I'm about to talk about. As a former manager over clinical documentation integrity who also managed utilization review at an academic medical center, my focus was on understanding all the possible sources of revenue leakage. At that time, UR staff focused on activities that demonstrated a patient's medical necessity as defined by a variety of payers, but often uh, a application of things like interqual criteria or Millman criteria, while the CDI team focused on capturing patient acuity to support accurate reimbursement under the inpatient prospective payment system and other DRG payers. However, we had a blind spot at my organization, like many, because before medical necessity can be supported and a diagnosis can be reported on a claim, the service has to be covered first by the payer, which is why the inpatient-only list was really pertinent timing to what I'm talking about today. But I'm going to be focused on the approval process is kind of straightforward when it comes to commercial payers as it involves authorizations, pre-certifications, and most healthcare organizations have dedicated staff to obtain authorizations from these commercial payers. But what's less well known is when it comes to Medicare beneficiaries. Medicare coverage policies specific specify which items and services are covered under the Medicare program and under which circumstances, such as requiring specific clinical criteria, are met irregardless of things like Millman and Interqual criteria. We see sometimes that outpatient CDI efforts supporting medical necessity, such as doing things like ensuring the right diagnosis codes are included with imaging or injections, but it's far less common in the inpatient setting, which is interesting because healthcare is so much more expensive, so there's more opportunity for revenue leakage. When specific clinical criteria must be met to support Medicare coverage, it's often outlined in what's called National Coverage Determinations, or NCDs, or Local Coverage Determinations, LCDs. CMS states that services must meet specific medical necessity requirements in the statute regulation manuals and specific medical necessity criteria as defined by NCDs and LCDs if any applicable uh, apply to the reported service. 
For every service you bill, you must indicate the specific sign, symptom, or patient complaint that makes the service reasonable or necessary. And often, this is defined by ICD-10 uh, CM or PCS code. Now, not all, all not all services have associated NCDs or LCDs, but if there is one associated with a service, the medical necessity must be demonstrated with the specific clinical criteria. LCDs are similar to NCDs, but are defined by the Social Security Act as determined by a physical intermediary or carrier under Part A or Part B as applicable, respecting whether or not particular items or services is carried on a case-by-case or intermediary basis. So these are not uniform like the national coverage of determinations, but it can apply to several different Medicare Administrative Contractor or MAC regions. NCDs and LCDs don't really fall into the typical CDI or UM workflow, but it could result in significant revenue leakage if not provided when necessary. There's a component of both departments as there's often the requirement for specific diagnoses to be present, but also associated with ICD-10 codes. So supporting clinical criteria in a diagnosis, especially clinical validation, is important to ensure that these claims can get paid. As CDI departments grow, some are venturing out into new areas like covered services as defined by NCDs and LCDs to avoid these services denials. Unlike DRG changes, these types of denials often result in no payment rather than a reduced payment, which can be costly if it involves a procedure and the cost cannot be shifted to the Medicare beneficiary if due diligence was not completed by the organization. So this could be a huge source of revenue leakage if not being monitored. Back to you, Dennis. Thanks, Cheryl. That was Cheryl Erickson, nationally recognized CDI expert and the clinical program manager for Iodine Software. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dennis, very much. And uh, Cheryl, thank you for a great report. You can also read Cheryl's report in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Coming up next is surprising results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. And then later, the new Ahima CDI product brief. Stand by, everybody. The clinical revenue cycle is a little-known but highly essential facet of the overall revenue picture for hospitals. It accounts for a large portion of costs associated with patient care. Gaining a clear understanding of the clinical revenue cycle begins with the recognition of the need to improve its performance in relation to overall revenue. During a groundbreaking ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Dr. John Zellum will explain, in easy-to-understand terms, the importance of the clinical revenue cycle. He'll empower you to realize unrecorded but rightfully earned revenue for your facility. You'll learn that specificity in documentation translates to billing accuracy, reducing the risk of denials. The webcast is Wednesday, July 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey is, once again, Lori Johnson. Today we asked, have you noticed an increase in overdose deaths in your area? And the results are 34% say yes, 20% say no, and we have 46% who are unknown or choose not to answer. So obviously most of our audience has noticed um, a change one way or the other. So back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Lori Johnson, very much. 
ICD-10 Monitor and Titan Tuesday are very honored that Tammy Combs is unveiling the new AHIMA CDI practice brief. Here now is Tammy Combs, and Tammy, thanks for unveiling the AHIMA CDI practice brief right here on Titan Tuesday. Thanks again, and welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for allowing me to discuss this important CDI practice brief here on Talk 10 Tuesday. And hello, everyone. Um, Let's start with a little background on this practice brief. With the advancement of technology in the CDI industry and the expansion of CDI into various healthcare settings, there has been a shift seen in the timing of the CDI health record review. Traditionally, a CDI health record review was performed either concurrently or retrospective to the patient's encounter. But with the advent of the electronic health record and the fast-paced environment of outpatient encounters, CDI professionals are finding the need for prospective reviews of the health record, which occur prior to the patient's encounter. This has led to the need for guidance in the practice of prospective reviews and queries. Thus, the AHIMA CDI Practice Council began the, the development of the prospective CDI reviews and query alert practice best standards, which is our practice brief we're discussing today. I hope all of you will review this practice brief in detail. There's a lot of valuable information within the document. I'm going to highlight some of the key concepts that are discussed in the practice brief. As with any CDI health record, the prospective review may result in the need to query. This practice brief includes the definition of a query, which was derived from the AHIMA Actus Practice Brief Guidelines for Achieving a Compliant Query Practice. Queries may be called by different names and sent at different times, but when it is clarifying clinical documentation, it should follow the query compliance guidelines. In a prospective review, this query may be called an alert to remind providers to review all chronic conditions and to include any active conditions in their documentation. There are several topics um, discussed here in the practice brief, so let's um, take a quick look at some of them. One of the topics discussed is when the prospective review and documentation query or alert is needed. When reviewing outpatient health records, one of the top reasons for a documentation alert is to identify chronic conditions that are still active. These alerts should follow current query guidance and coding guidelines. The practice brief references the official guidelines for coding and reporting, which explains the chronic conditions that chronic conditions can be coded as many times as the patient receives treatment and care for the condition. The documentation of these conditions should specify if the condition is chronic versus a history condition. Also, hierarchical condition categories are used to assign risk adjustment factor, which is based on clinical documentation. This also supports the need for accurate and complete documentation as accurate risk adjustment factors describe the severity of a patient's disease burden. Documentation alerts may help support the reporting of HCCs to capture the accurate risk adjustment factor. Also, national coverage determinations and local coverage determinations are also discussed in the practice brief. As most of us know, a denial can occur if the documentation does not support the NCD or LCD. Provider education and tools such as prospective reviews and the documentation alerts can help improve documentation and support the NCDs and LCDs. Also discussed is infusion capture, which is based on NCDs, LCDs, coding guidelines, or a combination. These infusions uh, many times are scheduled in advance and may also benefit from this prospective review and documentation alert. The practice brief also compares inpatient and outpatient coding guidelines, which differ in several ways. CDI professionals should be familiar with both inpatient and outpatient specific guidelines. 
The outpatient setting may result in more codes for signs and symptoms when a definitive diagnosis is not provided. Prospective reviews may help identify opportunities for more definitive diagnoses. Reporting and compliance is another important uh, topic that's discussed here, discussed in the practice brief. CDI professionals should interact with different departments that are involved in prospective alerts and concurrent and retrospective queries to validate compliance standards are followed. When a compliant process is developed, it will result in more accurate data for reporting purposes. Improving documentation accuracy through data analytics can have significant impact on clinical decision making and appropriate reimbursement. So documentation queries and alerts should have documentation subject matter experts on the team to monitor for this compliance. The provider perspective is also discussed in an important point in the world of CDI. Providers are are busy professionals, as are many of us, and may feel these documentation queries and alerts are administrative burdens. So there may be a need for education regarding the high-quality documentation and its impact on patient care. Um, Providers should also be included in the initiatives to develop documentation systems that work well with providers, uh, with the provider's workflow. So there is also an appendix in the practice brief with some examples of some of the scenarios that's discussed throughout the practice brief. CDI initiatives should continually strive for an accurate representation of the patient's clinical conditions and quality of care provided. As I conclude, I would like to remind all CDI professionals to stay compliant with CDI practice by following coding conventions, the official guidelines for coding and reporting, guidelines for achieving a compliant query practice, and all other applicable guidelines and regulations for your specific organization. I hope you all find this practice brief um, helpful as you develop and advance your CDI programs, and I wish you all the best in all of your CDI initiatives. Thank you so much. And now back to Chuck. Thanks, uh, Tammy. Very, very much. Uh, that was uh, Tammy Comsey as the AHIMA Practice Brief Director. And uh, Tammy, before we leave you, a couple of questions uh, that have come in. Kay wants to know, she says, I'm a member of AHIMA and I'm on the AHIMA organization, but I can't locate the practice brief. Could you send us a link? Uh, Bridget says, where can I find the new CDI practice brief? So could you answer those two questions for us? Yes, great question. So this practice brief is going to be free to the industry. Um, There's going to be a link sent out, but you can go to the AHIMA store and just type in the practice brief and it will come up for you there within the store. And then um, you'll download it from the AHIMA store. It'll be in your digital downloads under My AHIMA. Anyone can go in there and download that uh, for free. So just go into the AHIMA store and download it and you will see it there in your digital downloads. Thanks, Tammy, uh, for the great answer to those two great questions. Now's the time for our guest co-host to tell us what's on their radar screen. It's a segment we call Point of View, and here now is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital, Dennis Jones. Dennis, what's on your radar? Well, thank you very much, Chuck. Um, An important topic that's really been on my mind for, for, you know, months, if not years, you know, one positive aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic has been that has shown a light on the dedication, integrity, and bravery of frontline healthcare workers. But even before COVID-19, healthcare service settings had become an increasingly dangerous place to work. There have been numerous horrific news stories this year that remind us what a risky place a hospital is to earn a living. There was an incident in February in Philadelphia where a doctor was assaulted by a patient in the hospital's behavioral health unit. 
The doctor had gone to the unit to inform the patient that he was not being discharged that day. Upon hearing, uh, upon hearing that news, the patient attacked the physician. In this particularly violent assault, the patient grabbed a knife from a lunch tray and repeatedly stabbed the doctor in the face, neck, and arms. The doctor survived these injuries, but she and a number of her colleagues who had witnessed the attack from the nursing station were traumatized by the incident. Recently in Alabama, a nurse went searching for a patient who had left a psychiatric treatment area. When she went to a nearby exit in order to look outside of the hospital, she was confronted by the patient who was armed with a knife. She attempted to get back inside the hospital, but her ID pass didn't open the door soon enough. The patient, her patient, rushed to, the, uh, to block her escape and stabbed her in the chest. These days, stories about workplace violence often lead the evening news. Warehouses, post offices, grocery stores, and small businesses have been the scenes of unimaginable number of mass shootings in the past year. However, recent statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics show that healthcare workers are nine times more likely to be victims of work, workplace violence than those in any other sector. In the most recent year of compiled data, 71% of workplace injuries resulting from violent attacks that required a day or more of recuperation were reported by doctors, nurses, or other healthcare employees. In a recent survey of 123 emergency department physicians, residents, and staff, almost 80% reported that they had been physically assaulted in the last 12 months. 90% said that they had been verbally assaulted or threatened. Recently, in my hospital, in suburban New York, the father of a patient who was unhappy about how long his daughter was waiting for treatment complained loudly and showed the registrar that he was carrying a handgun. Prompt action by our security team and the local police kept the episode from escalating into another sad headline on CNN. Now, our suburban community hospital emergency room has metal detectors installed to make sure that this close call does not happen again. We all know that COVID-19 has raised the community awareness of how brave and committed you need to be to work in healthcare these days. Our frontline workers in all patient treatment areas have been heralded as heroes for accepting the risks to themselves and their families in order to provide services to those most in need. The hospital emergency room has become almost the Normandy beach in our fight against COVID-19. But there has been bravery and selflessness in hospitals before we ever heard of COVID-19. The stress and tension working with and around emergency patients, psychiatric patients, geriatric patients, wears on our doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers. I hope that hospitals recognize this and continue to take all necessary steps to protect healthcare workers and patients. And I hope that the communities that we serve continue to recognize the heroes in the front line of healthcare. That's it for me, Chuck. Thanks. Thanks, Dennis, very, very much. This is going to be a wrap for our 469th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Cheryl Erickson, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Tammy Collins from Ahima, who reported our lead story, and my great pal, Dennis Jones, the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. And one more thing before we go, when we're not on the air, you can always listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. And when you do, rate us, send us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talking Tuesday. Have a great productive week, everybody.
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.